Hi everyone and welcome to the Value SaaS podcast. The show where we talk to people from around the B2B SaaS world about their experience building capital efficient businesses. This is a bit of a foundational episode for this podcast because we are actually going to take a step back and have a bit of a meta discussion with Rajan Maruthavanan, partner at the Opeka Accelerator, about what the term value SaaS means. This podcast is called the Value SaaS Podcast. So it only makes sense that we talk about what the name of the podcast actually means. Uh, and maybe in a couple of years, we can revisit this conversation to see how well we've done at spreading the word of value SaaS to the rest of the world. Uh, but moving on to the actual interview, as always, I jumped on the call with Rajan with a fixed agenda in mind about what we were going to talk about. And almost immediately, it went out of the window because we often digress into philosophical discussions about a whole bunch of topics. And this conversation was no different. We did talk about building capital efficient SaaS businesses. We did talk about what the term value SaaS means, but not before a substantive conversation about the importance of metaphors. Yep, the ones that we learned about in English class for thinking critically. But that's enough from me. Here's the interview. Hey, by the way, uh, one thing that was, I've been meaning to ask you, I did a deep dive into like the content on the lake. Uh, some of your previous interviews, I also re-listened to my interview with Prasanna uh, that I did for the TARS podcast. Have you guys read Metaphors We Live By by George Lakoff? I did. You have? Okay, cool. Because I, I, it strikes me that you guys use metaphors a lot. And it's sort of really I, like... I'm the culprit. I mean, I've read uh, George Lakoff. I'm... Uh... Yeah, I'm I'm big on metaphors. I mean, I've explained metaphors as these rickety furniture on your head on which complex idea can be seated. So I'm oh, yeah. known for a metaphor for metaphor. No, I actually think it's I actually I'm, I'm I, after listening to all of these videos, I'm actually thinking of actively relying on metaphors more because I mean, I think of metaphors and frameworks in sort of the same same. I mean, metaphors are essentially frameworks for understanding. A little uh, more simpler for me. Metaphors are a little more simpler than framework. The sense right. that you know it, it gives you perfect immediate visual imagery, right? That's what a metaphor does. Framework may or may not give that. Framework will only give you the structure and the bone. Right? Metaphor comes with the meat and the juice. Framework is just the bones. So there are three levels that I use, right? So one is I call it as the metaphors, mental models, and first principles. And most people, most entrepreneurs like first principles. Right. Uh, George Lakoff's point is that there's no such thing as first principle. Everything is his metaphor, right? So, uh, but but you know, if I were to use a different analogy, the the way to think about this is I call this the bhajan gita and the veda level. Right? So bhajan is what like you know it's metaphorical. Everybody gets it, and it is easy to propagate. And whatever becomes viral is all at the bhajan level, right? Because right. like 99% of the world gets it, and which is why I prefer that. Right? And I'm like okay, I'm I'm. Uh, optimizing for understanding than for technical accuracy, right? And those people who are more uh, engineering oriented or more structure and logic oriented, they care more about the accuracy of it. Because what can happen is when you're trying to take something and translate it to metaphor, there's a lot of details that get missed out. And it, it depends on who's wielding that metaphor. Right. And many gurus start using those metaphors to then sound very smart and wise. Right, and then they get them get their followers to commit atrocities. Right. right. Um, so, so that therefore, the more logical thinking person, they all try to believe or like to think about at the first principle level. 
I'm now reading Christopher Hitchens. I know you may have followed this guy. He's uh, written a book, many book, uh, but I think you know one of the uh, that's very popular right now is um, uh, Letters to a Young Contrarian. And then he stress or or him or guy like Sam Harris or Naval. All these guys talk about reasoning from first principles. Like okay, that's all fine, but you know unless I can translate it to like a person on the ground, it doesn't matter. so so therefore i am big on metaphors i'm like okay you know call me crude call me say that you know i'm not sophisticated enough but i'd rather do this and one of the areas that i'm developing as a speciality for myself is this the ability to go to the first principle level and retranslate it back to a metaphorical level because when you just talk at metaphorical level a lot of things get missed out but are you able to think it back to the first principles level but then if you just stay there then only you have an audience of 0.01% in the world because not everybody is going to appreciate enjoy you can only hang out with elon musk of the world i can't hang out with my grandma my nephew my mom so i want to retranslate it back to metaphors so that's why i'm i am a metaphor hunter i'm actually thinking the way you describe the process of going from first principles and retranslating it into metaphors to make it accessible to people i think one way you could maybe convey that to more technically oriented folks is in terms of programming languages because it's almost like you're taking something that's like a low level programming language and translating it into something that's a high level higher level more readable programming language no one can read assem- things like assembly but a lot of people know python so if you can okay. translate it to python correct translate it to python then it's yeah, it was correct i mean i've read i have uh, written assembly line uh, level code and oh. i used to love it i mean and i used to think that you know maybe everybody should know uh, machine uh, level coding it's very hard but like i know people who who know assembly level and then then you know marvel at what higher level programming language will do see this that's a great again metaphor right somebody's like assembly level is is like first principles veda level right only 0.01% of the world will get it right? and they're like why go to that length and that difficulty but if you if you and i can speak in a language or even a slang then you and i can like instantly connect with each other right versus you and i trying to sort of speak at a sanskrit like a language that we need to learn and be very official so so that's the difference between a metaphor and a, a first principle so that assembly language versus a higher level programming language i think that was correct what you mentioned it's a different metaphor But yeah, we've already essentially talked about using metaphors as a way to think about things. Um, one good place I think we can start is maybe talking about this metaphor of SaaS companies as a flywheel. And I sort of understand, I understand the the basic structure of of flywheel, the core components, the fact that they're interdependent. But I actually did not know what a flywheel was in in real life. So maybe we can go through the exercise of you translating how the SAS flywheel sort of maps onto like a an actual flywheel in the physical world. So the first thing I would start with is to say that SAS founders, first-time founders, when they get started, they hear about two things: either they talk about funding or they talk about product market fit. Now, funding, in essentially, it's not a bad thing, right? So. if you're starting out then pretty much any investor that is trying to invest in you is looking for the capability of you turning into a rocket ship now if you're very very young it's very hard to figure out what is the sachin tendulkar 
the great batsman potential in us it'll take some time before those qualities can emerge another way i'd like to say this is that investment is is like rocket fuel certainly venture investment is like rocket fuel and if you try to put that into an auto rickshaw then you know it it is a recipe for explosion you want to first transform your auto rickshaw into a solid ferrari and after that you can consume that so so one is the whole idea of chasing for venture investment you came up with an idea and then you're going after that and that's not a great thing unless you have come to a place where you know how you can actually digest that rocket fuel so one of the core philosophies at upeka is is to say like let's first find you your unit economics or your ability to digest the capital where you put in a dollar and you know how you can generate more than a dollar out of that and then decide to go forward venture funding or any other path that you want to pursue the second thing is is the whole idea of product market fit a product market fit i've used it in the past but of late the last couple of years i have actively discontinued using that for a simple reason that that you know it's a very fuzzy concept it doesn't allow a founder to make business decisions to make progress forward product market fit is an investor language that was used to decide whether in a particular startup more money should be poured in more rocket fuel should be poured in or not if you look at the popular definitions of uh, product market fit on the internet you will say hey you would know it when it exists it doesn't have any connection to a real quantifiable business metric so instead of that we started focusing on the revenue and one beauty about the saas business is is that saas business is a recurring business that sense that if you're delivering some value to a customer then every month you have to deliver that value if you don't do that then the customers walk away unlike the enterprise software world where if you made a sale for one year two year three year you come back to the customer only after the license agreement expires but in the case of saas you have to deliver value and you have to do it repeatedly and when you do that is another interesting thing that happens if you deliver additional value then the same customers are willing to pay you more the next month itself so there is an element of recurring value that you provide and therefore a recurring revenue the third thing that we looked at is is the whole idea of a sales funnel is broken it may be useful to work in an enterprise software world but if you come to think about it a funnel is is a vertical structure you know it looks like as if you put something on the top and automatically through the pull of the gravity it will go down that's not how a sales motion works so people used to think about sales and marketing independently from the product and the expansion that could happen in the product so there are three things that i'm talking about one is that when you think about a startup idea funding is is not the next big milestone you are better off if you are thinking about revenue and financial independence therefore just using product market fit which doesn't give you a guidance on how to move that revenue is not a great metaphor to use or a great mental model to use instead of that you want to focus on revenue and through the nature of the saas business the saas marketing product and expansion which is popularly known as success are all lot more intricately involved with each other so you are attracting a stranger into a fan coming and saying hey check my product out 
and you are doing a motion of solving the problem for that particular prospect by the understanding of like what are the problems that he's having in his life a sales motion and then the product delivering value for that particular problem the benefit for that particular problem and if you continue to do that on a regular basis and the same customer pays you more and the same customers also refer you more customer and through that you are able to think about this entire progress motion as a flywheel where it starts with marketing sales product usage product consumption expansion and then referral so that's why this whole idea of funnel or a product market fit is a metaphor which is useful to initially start thinking about but it kind of breaks specifically for saas and for saas a flywheel of revenue and the more capital efficiently you can build this the more option that you generate for yourself as a founder the faster you turn yourself into the ferrari engine the faster you are able to get that 1 dollar in and 1 dollar out equation solved and then you get to decide what do you want to do next with life it almost seems like it almost seems like all the components sort of existed out there in the ether and it's just a question of sort of creating a unified theory to bring them all together because if you think about it i mean maybe the funnel is not the perfect metaphor for it but the the process of moving someone along i mean we still use the term funnel but the process of moving someone along a funnel if you sort of attach that i'm thinking about it visually if you attach that to the sorts of processes that you have maybe on the customer success side if you attach that to the sorts of processes that you have uh, on the marketing side on the product side if you unify all of those together you essentially have this um sort of virtuous cycle where you can bring customers in deliver them value and that sort of begets more value to you yeah so now you come to think of it it sounds very intuitive right it's just that you know most of us were used to a very different visual or a different metaphor now when you unified it through a newer metaphor then it sounds more simple more intuitive the conversation is much more straightforward and then now we are able to have a conversation which feels like okay we are at this particular stage and we are able to move from here to here and it is very very useful as a framework for a founder to make progress as opposed to saying hey product market fit is is this feeling that you have you will <laughs> you will uh, know it when you have it and then you know then people will follow that with another statement saying product market fit is very very ephemeral where uh, it is there one moment and it can go away another moment right? so so that's why like we we wanted to sort of go away from um concepts or ideas which are very very subjective to frameworks that are useful for us to make progress i don't know if you've ever read the philosopher bruno latour actor network theory but he has this idea and it's like an epistemological idea i could be butchering it completely this is based on my limited understanding of what he says but um essentially he argues for like he he essentially argues that all knowledge is sort of exists in in a network and there is the the boundaries that we create between them to create these silos where like oh this is physics this is political science this is history are arbitrary it almost seems like the flywheel is sort of arguing that all of these these different components of a saas business that we think of as being siloed are actually 
interrelated with one another and you can't really think you can't think about them separately you can't think about one part of the flywheel where you are trying to retain a customer and show them value and like maybe the customer success process that you have um as being somehow separate and siloed from what you're doing on the marketing or the product side um and the framework is essentially to understand all of those things as related to each other to as a way to understand what your business is and how to structure your business. Uh, now, one question, one follow-up question that I do have, this seems like an extremely useful metaphor to understand how to structure a SaaS business, uh, but in deterministic terms, maybe can you give me a sense of what the components of this flywheel are? Yeah, so there are like multiple nuances through which we can look at this. I will try to use a explanation. It's, it's not borrow from other... Uh, Ideas, but if I were to say that there are there are five, I would say just building blocks to this. Right, one is I would say the first piece is you need to have a demand generating engine. What do I mean by that? This is the role that marketing does. But here, what we are saying is that look, as a business, you have something to offer. Right, but the role of marketing is is not to just uh, deliver that offering, but is to do something maybe a song and a dance to say, hey, I have something interesting to offer to you. So can you come and check it out? So the role of marketing or the first piece of this is the demand generating engine, which is going to go tell people that hey, there is something that is interesting for checking out here. So how do you put together a demand generating engine? And that has like three parts to it, which is you need to get your positioning right. You need to have a good brand narrative story. And uh, you need to try out two or three different things, maybe a webinar, maybe a podcast or maybe writing some piece of content so that people get interested in uh, things that you have to offer, uh, the, the right set of people that you have positioned for, and then they resonate with the story that you're telling, and then they come and check you out on what is it that you have to offer, like the experience that you can create. So that, that first piece of demand gen engine to generate what we call as uh, MQLs or leads uh, needs to be in place. And that piece of demand gen engine goes along with positioning. You need to have positioned it right. If you have not positioned it right for your audience, then people would know that they have come to the right place and that will create a lot of chaos in, in uh, a prospect's head, uh, a, a stranger that is walking into your offering, uh, to your business offering's head that, you know, look, this, this is, I don't know whether I'm in the right place. So demand gen engine along with the positioning is the first, the first and the second piece of it. The third piece of it is, is what I would call is, is have you built a product roadmap or have you built a problem framed product roadmap where you're solving the right problem for the person that is walking in? Like whatever MQLs these demand gen engine is going to create for you, they are going to have a match with the product roadmap that you have set up so that you're solving a high value problem for these folks. And you need to have a product roadmap in such a way that you know you're solving continuously a higher value problem for them as you build your product. So demand an engine positioning and a problem framed product roadmap. These are the first three uh, sections of it. Then the fourth one I would say is, is value-based pricing. Have you priced it in such a way that like, you know, the pricing is aligned with the value that the customer is using uh, or deriving? Right? And when, when value-based pricing is working, then you can do what is called as customer success, which is you can get your current customers to derive more value out of what uh, you have to offer. 
And when that happens, then your existing customers give you more revenue than what they did last month or last year. And these customers are also happy. So they bring in more referrals, more customers for you. They give you great NPS course. They give you more uh, referrals that come back and uh, add up to uh, like, you know, leads on the demand gen engine. So demand gen engine, positioning, product roadmap, value-based pricing, success. It's all working in cohort with each other so that you are able to get this virtuous cycle of, a dollar coming in and uh, more than a dollar of uh, revenue and profit coming out. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. The first question that comes to my mind is where do I start in this flywheel? Because as we just talked about, it is all interdependent. So I do I need to fight on all fronts? And if I do, how do I do that? It seems extremely daunting, especially if you're just starting out and you maybe have a small team and you maybe only have expertise in one part of this flywheel. How do you, one, develop the expertise to target all of the other parts of the flywheel? And two, maybe how do you manage your resources to fight on all of these fronts at the same time if that's needed? Sure. So when uh, most people get started, I don't think they think about things in this way, right? So they are mostly thinking about, hey, I have an idea, right? So the (laughs) starting point is always an idea. And how you start with an idea, I think that's a very fascinating topic to talk about. Most of the cases is that people look at another startup and then they, they're like, hey, I can also do this. So it, it really starts with mirroring, right? Or the crass word for that is like, I copy another idea. Hey, this guy did it for this particular geography. Maybe I can do it for this geography. They did it for this segment. I also can build it. So let me go ahead and do it. Uh, what would be a good place to start though would be that if you felt a problem that you think you know you can solve even if you started with this idea of mirroring someone asking the question of saying hey who are the people where this particular idea is solving a like a high value problem for zeroing in on that would be the first step to do so so essentially you know the first step is always about focusing on finding out whether you are solving a high value problem or not. If you come from domain expertise background, I mean, you worked in, let's say the ad industry for a very long time, then you have a intuitive sense of that. This is a high value problem. This is what you want to solve for the agency or the marketing professionals uh, that you have uh, already hung out with. Right. But if you're, if you're just mirroring somebody's idea, you're saying that I'm going to sort of build a SaaS idea uh, similar to this, then unless you have dug out the value of the problem that you're solving, People don't make progress. So the first step is is to always, and that's why we focus on saying, hey, do you have a high value problem? Have you found out? Right? And there, the challenge that I've seen is usually people, when they mirror and copy an idea, they're only thinking in what I call as a solution brain. Right? So solution brain is, is always saying always, we've always been taught to just you know come up with solution for things. We've never been trained to just pause and say, hey, what is the problem that we are trying to solve? And in my mind, it almost feels like it's a different area in the brain where people have to be forced to think through. Right? So, so identifying the high value problem that somebody is solving is, is very, very critical. Right? So that's the first step. You, you start with a domain expertise or you start with mirroring anybody's idea. You first start with high value problem. That's one. The second thing is, and this is uh, something that I think uh, second time founder get it really well is, is that marketing doesn't have to wait for the product to have built. Marketing can start 
like six months before the product is launched. I'm yet to see a first time founder get this very intuitively, but second time founders do this really well. Yeah, like, look, regardless of the problem that I'm solving, I know that this is a specific area that I'm going to work on. And I, there are a few things that I really care about. I have a point of view about this. So why don't I keep, or why don't I start talking about the point of view that I have about this particular space itself? And that will bring me a lot of people who are interested in this particular space. And when I'm ready with my product launch, right, then I can go back to these folks and say that, look, this was the point of view I had, and I was so bummed by it. So this is how I built a solution. I know that you are also interested in this point of view. Do you want to try it out? Right? And then that leads them to their initial set of uh, like, you know, alpha, beta customers or like MQLs and things like that. So, so you can actually start both marketing and the product almost parallelly. But if you're a first-time founder, the first step to really do is, is to make sure that you have a high enough conviction that you are solving a high-value problem. In, in today's day and age, I would say that if you're not solving a $3,000 annual contract value problem, then it's almost a non-starter. Right? So you won't be able to build a, a go-to-market engine which can actually sort of uh, scale that if you are not solving a $3,000 ACV problem to even get to about a million dollars in revenue. So first step is a high-value problem. I mean, from my experience working at a SaaS startup, it's very intuitive in marketing where you have to understand the problem that you are solving because it's only when you create messaging, it's only when you create content that resonates with that problem that people will respond well to what you're creating and actually be interested in it. And actually this this resonates with what Ish was saying in the last interview we did, uh, where he was talking about how he got into marketing and he was telling us the story about how he was in college uh, when he started his first website. And he started a website about people who were giving entrance exams to get into engineering college, just like he did. And he focused on essentially the problems that he was facing, not exactly the problems that he was facing, but he was essentially targeting a target audience that was a lot like himself. Uh, and he said that he faced a lot of challenges when he tried to branch out uh, his website into focusing on on other forms of entrance exams. So and MBAs, med, med school exams. Um, and he, he, faced a, he faced a problem in making that transition because he obviously did not have a complete grasp of that problem. Right. And Prasanna says this, right? So if you have not come from the domain, you will spend two years just understanding the domain. Right? So those people who come from the domain, they get that uh, two years a head start. But if you've not come from a domain, you've just mirrored some other idea, you've spent the first one year and two years just getting to know the space in depth so that you've identified that high, high value problem. Now, I know that's a in an ideal world, that's a good place to start. But often... This is just my observation, but I see a lot of startups out there that are dealing with problems that maybe their founders, maybe none of their team members have an experience in solving. Um, I mean, take me for, for, for example, I have to create content that appeals to an insurance broker. I have to create content that appeals to a mortgage broker. I have to create content that appeals to a real estate agent. I've never been any of those things. I don't think anyone at ours has ever been been any of those things. And that's sort of something I th I think, um, Ish can correct me if I'm, I'm wrong on this, but I think that's something that we sort of stumbled into where, as I understand it, if I remember correctly, 
we were trying to solve each and Vineet were trying to solve a problem that they had noticed, I think themselves, uh, and they created this product. And it turns out that it's useful for all of these other people as well who work in domains that are completely different from ones that we are accustomed to. Is there any way to develop that expertise? So in that, in that two years uh, that you're being penalized for not having that domain expertise, what can you do to gain that domain expertise? Um, if you find that you've created a product that appeals to a whole set of people that you did not know about and you really don't understand. Yeah, so I don't think about this as a penalized. It's, a, it's an investment, right? So I was framing it more in terms of people have that head start or not. The way you learn, the way you understand this is you have to talk to customers. And the way you talk to customers is not to sell them, but really try to understand their domain or problem. So you have to frame the questions in terms of saying, hey, tell me, like, what are the things that you're trying to do? What are the challenges that you face? And when you were trying to do this and it did not happen, what did you do next? Right? As opposed to saying, hey, I have this product, I have this feature, I can do this demo for you. This can do versus uh, that particular product in a much better way. So the way you frame the question with your customers and how you learn from that is how you learn this domain understanding. Right? So the two years you spend in just talking to these customers in an open-ended kind of a way and trying to figure out what is the problem that you can solve as opposed to saying, I'm going to build a product which has a bunch of features and I'm going to just you know, sort of dump on you. And if it didn't work with you, then you are dumb. I will move on to the next person. So, so that is the change or the mindset that one needs to have in having that conversation with the customers and um, like understanding it. What I've seen is the founders that have an engineering background, they focus 95% of their time on just building and coding and not having the conversation with the customers. And when they are having a conversation with the customers, they are not framing it in the right way. And if they, if they do frame it in the right way in about a year or two, they also get a deep enough understanding. A good framework that comes to my mind to understand this difference of what you should do and what you shouldn't do, listening to your customers versus sort of telling them what they need is the difference between inductive and deductive thinking in social science. We, when we're framing a research project, we often frame it as either being inductive or deductive. And what a deductive project is, is you go in with a fixed hypothesis and you try to establish whether that hypothesis is true or not. Whereas an inductive one is sort of where you approach your research, trying to learn what's on the ground and you let your research subjects, you let your research participants guide your research forward based on what they say you sort of follow that thread and, and and see where it leads you. And it seems like the best way to gain domain expertise is to adopt an inductive approach where a lot of people are adopting a deductive approach. That's correct. Now I want to pivot the conversation a little bit. Um, I understand what the flywheel is, which is sort of the core of the work that you guys are doing at Opeka. You're trying to help SaaS businesses build their flywheels. I understand what the components of that flywheel are. Uh, and I understand where you might want to start. You need to understand this high value problem. And if you don't understand fully, you need to sort of ask questions and take this inductive approach to understanding what exactly it is that your customers want. And that's a great jumping off point because once you have a deep understanding of that problem, it sort of informs everything else in the flywheel. and it, everything else falls into place. That's very intuitive to me. Having done 
at least one part of the flywheel myself, having worked in marketing, it's very intuitive to me that once you understand the problem, it's very easy to create messaging around it. And I anticipate that it's probably similar elsewhere in the flywheel as well. I have obviously haven't worked in something like customer success before. Uh, I haven't worked on, on, on pricing before, but once you understand the problem, you know how, how to price it because you know what the value of the problem is. Once you understand what the problem is, you know how to give support for that problem and how to implement your product to solve that problem on the customer success side. Now, another term that I want to throw into the conversation right now, because it figures very heavily into the messaging at Opeka. I mean, the name of this podcast as of right now is the value SaaS podcast is the term value SaaS. So what is, how does value SaaS figure into this flywheel metaphor? What ex- for, okay, maybe taking a step back, what exactly is value SaaS? Uh, and then maybe we can talk about how it ties into this flywheel metaphor that we've been talking about. Sure. So value SaaS is not vanity SaaS. I think that's where we should start. Uh, vanity SaaS is this uh, mindset or this approach of getting to a million dollars after you've raised $6 million, right? By spending $6 to earn your first dollar, uh, that's not a great way to build business. And uh, when you focus on growth before you focus on solving the basics of the business equation, which is uh, to figure out how you generate more than a dollar than the dollar invested, that mindset is called as vanity SaaS. And why that is a little dangerous and that is uh, harmful for founders is because Brisson and I have seen uh, through our last uh, decade of experience of working with different type of founders, B2B SaaS founders is, is that B2B founders are also pushed into this thinking, which is more prevalent in the B2C world of saying, if you don't become a winner, then it doesn't matter. The B2C industry, it has a winner takes all dynamics in most of its sectors. In which case, growth becomes paramount. And for you to win in the business, you have to be the biggest and the fastest than your competitors. right? But in B2B, the market dynamics or structure are not like that. Even the third or the fourth person uh, in the market space for that particular uh, segment can make more than 100 million and be profitable. right? So, so you don't need a winner-takes-all mindset in B2B. But when a B2B SaaS founder is also pushed to sort of grow at all cost, um, it hurts them, right? I mean, even in the B2C case, uh, like, you know, for 1,000 founders, 1,000 founders are uh, invested in to find that, you know, one, two, or maybe three unicorn. Um, and rest of them are <laughs> sacrificed. So <laughs> we were very disturbed by this dynamics that we saw where B2B founders are pushed into this unicorn path and uh, many of them, if they could have built a small sizable business that could have translated into meaningful founder outcome. So to find the unicorn, many meaningful founder outcomes were sacrificed. So we were disturbed by that. We said, hey, this is not the right way for anybody to pursue their entrepreneurial dream. So what if we could teach founders through our experiences, through our network, uh, give them the access where they're able to solve this basic business equation of uh, getting more than a dollar or the dollar invested. And after that, let them figure out whether they are going to be the rocket ship that a unicorn is uh, expecting them to be, or whether they want to build a small, uh, sizable business and uh, exit to a much larger player, or they want to continue to build this business for the rest of their lifetime. So that's a choice that should be left for founders because all of those choices are viable choices. But trying to find that unicorn early in the game, these other two paths are uh, sacrificed and first-time founders don't understand it. So we we decided to bring our access and our resources uh, 
their know-how to help founders do this. So we always focus on making sure that we get the unit economics right before we step the pedal of on the gas of growth, right? So this contrast of saying no compromise of unit economics before growth, solving the basic equation. And in SaaS uh, industry, you can do this. You can build the SaaS flywheel, right? the, the components that we talked about. And it turns out that you don't need $6 million to get to a million. Within Opeka, we're working with 61 startups and uh, four out of the five first startups, none of them raised any anywhere more than 150K to 200K of family and friend round, and they all got to a million. And now after they've gotten to a million, then now is the right time for them to figure out what option for them to take. So value SaaS is this mindset or the philosophy of solving unit economics before growth. In contrast to vanity SaaS, where growth is paramount and it is done at the expense often of unit economics. So, so that's the difference between value SaaS and vanity SaaS. It almost seems like we've sort of done the conversation in reverse, where the starting point, if we're trying to understand why Opeka's ex- Opeka exists, um, the starting point is sort of from the founder's perspective, founder welfare or founder wealth. So founders obviously get into the SaaS space because they want to solve a problem. Maybe they have an idea that they want to implement. But at the end of the day, a lot of them want to turn that idea into money. They want to turn it into wealth. And often what they think is the path to that wealth is the vanity SaaS approach where you target growth first and then you figure out the unit economics. Or not. Most of them... Those who try growth at all costs, they never find their unit economics. True, true. But in but in in pursuit of that path, where maybe they don't find the unit economics at the end, they sort of forget about this other path, which could be a more viable path to reaching wealth, which is to figure out the unit economics first, and then push the pedal on growth. And the way you tread that path, if we were to sort of specify what it looks like to figure out the unit economics first, and then uh, press the pedal on growth is using the flywheel metaphor. So to tread this path of unit economics first, growth next, is to build a flywheel business. That's correct. Well, folks, that is a wrap. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Value SaaS podcast. It was an absolute pleasure to make it for you guys. And going forward, we'll be publishing episodes of this podcast once every two weeks. So do keep an eye out for the next episode when it comes out. And the best way to stay informed about when new episodes come out is to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, really wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, if you enjoyed what you heard today, please consider giving us a rating on Apple Podcasts because it helps us reach more people. That's it from me today. Have a good one.